Well, unlike last week, when all 67 verses fit together so well um, and told us such a marvelous story of, of intrigue and suspense and romance, this, this week's 34 verses, while obviously associated, um, they feel somewhat disjointed because they're, they're transitional verses, they're biographical verses, they are descriptive verses, they're preparatory verses, um, they're verses that lay another level of foundation for Israel that's important as the narrative moves forward. Um, so what I've decided to do uh, is focus our attention on few of the, uh, a few of the focal verses throughout the passage that Aaron just read in its entirety. And I want us to look specifically uh, at verses 7 and 8, and then we're going to look at verses 21 to 23, and then uh, conclude with verse 34. And I want to do that um, because I want to spend some time considering three of the themes that emerge from the passage or from the chapter um, that can be drawn from the chapter rather than tell the story of the chapter like I did last week. Uh, and to be quite honest, it's going to feel a little, a little different than usual, um, but it's been a little different week, so we're just going to go with that, all right? Sometimes that happens, right? Um, our outline's got three points. You're going to find it in the back of your bulletin. We're going to find uh, satisfaction at the end of life, uh, identification throughout life, and then temptation in the midst of life. Children, you'll find your words in the normal place that you're listening for, all right? Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, we ask for you to work by your Spirit and give us eyes and ears to understand your Word so that as it is preached, our hearts would be convicted and our minds would be renewed and our faith would be strengthened and our wills would be fortified. May we receive it gladly and with anticipation. And as always, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, and grant me grace, and I might do something good for you and for your people this evening. I ask that you would attend to me as I do this work, and that you would use me as you see fit. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Well, Moses began, as you noticed when Aaron read, uh, he began this chapter by letting us know that Abraham took another wife. And while scholars debate about whether he took that wife before or after Sarah died, uh, the point Moses is actually making is irrespective of that timing. Because the point he's making is that Abraham's descendants were growing in number. But even more specific than that, his point was that Isaac was different than all of the rest of Abraham's sons. Abraham's offspring were increasing in number, but there was something special about Isaac. He was set apart because he was the one through whom the promise would be realized. Well, in verses 7 to 8, Moses said Abraham died when he was 175. And he described Abraham as not only dying of a good, or in a good old age or at a good old age, he also said he died full of years. 
And he's not referring or stressing the actual number of years. He's talking about the fullness of those years that Abraham experienced. In other words, as Abraham was dying, he was able to look back over the course of his life, and he was satisfied. He was content. There was a satisfaction at the end of his life. And the question that we need to ask is, why was he satisfied? And we also need to ask, how can we look back at the end of our lives and be satisfied in the same way? First of all, he he was satisfied because God had been favorable to him. He had been faithful to him throughout his life. And he knew, Abraham knew, that God would continue to be with him even in death. We've said several times, Abraham knew that there was more to come. He was looking for something more. He knew that he would be gathered into the presence of God with all of those who were looking toward and were considered children of the promise. And by the way, that's what gathered to his people means. And he also knew that he had more land coming than that tiny sliver or that small cave in Machpelah in which he would be and was buried. He knew God had been his God and would continue to be his God. He knew he would be with his people and they they would continue to be God's people. And he knew that they would all dwell in the presence of one another forever. Therefore, his life was full. But secondly, he was also satisfied because he himself had fulfilled his responsibility, humanly speaking. He had filled his responsibility to make sure the promise continued. What I mean is he, he blessed all of the other sons. We just read he blessed all of the other sons with gifts, gracious gifts, but they were all sent away to the east. And we know from our study thus far in Genesis and also from our study of Leviticus that that meant that they had been sent away farther from the presence of God. But to Isaac, he gave all that he had. Isaac was the promised one. Isaac was the recipient of the inheritance. His offspring would be the ones and the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled. It was through his offspring and through the ones and the one that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. The sons of the concubines were recipients of common blessings, but Isaac was the only recipient of the covenant blessings. Abraham removed the obstacles or potential conflict between them so that things would go well for Isaac. The bottom line was Abraham knew that death was not the end of the promises. He knew that they would continue as long long after he was gone. He knew the fulfillment of the promises and the continuance of the promises was not dependent upon upon him in the sense that he needed to continue living for the promises to be fulfilled. He he also knew he had learned he didn't need to manipulate things according to his will and his plan. But he also fulfilled his responsibility to set Isaac up to succeed as the next covenant patriarch and head through whom the promise would be realized. 
So Abraham was satisfied in what the Lord had done. He was satisfied in what the Lord was doing and would do. And he was satisfied in what he had done. And being satisfied, he was able to move on. Move on to the life to come. And we see in verse 11 that he was right. Because after his death, Isaac was blessed. Listen to these words from John Calvin. He says, the whole world languishes between, on the one hand, a weariness of this present life, and on the other hand, an inexplicable desire for it to continue. The contentment with life, he said, therefore, which will cause us to be ready to leave life, is a favor from God. Being satisfied is a gift, and it's a gift that, we only, that only comes from God. It's a, it's a gift of, the, the gift of satisfaction enables us to enjoy this life now, but it also gets us ready. It readies us for the inevitability of death, and that satisfaction comes as we, des- as we remember the promises of God that are ours in Christ. The satisfaction comes as we remember that God has been and continues to be faithful. It comes as we remember that He has been with us in this life and He will be with us in death. It comes as we remember that we too will be gathered to our people in His presence. It comes as we remember that our inheritance is being kept for us in heaven. It comes as we remember that God has been our God, and He will continue to be our God. It comes as as we remember that we are His people, and we will continue to be His people. It comes as, as we remember that we will be in His presence and dwell with Him forever, because all of the promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been united to Christ, and what is His is ours. Satisfaction comes as we remember that if God fulfilled His promises to Abraham and Hagar, as we see in verses 12 to 18, we can be certain He will fulfill His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to us, who are their spiritual descendants. And we need to ask ourselves, are we passing this on to our children? Are we doing everything we can, humanly speaking, to make sure the promises continue by reminding them that those promises that are ours are, those as, are theirs as well? Are we reminding them that satisfaction doesn't come by being friends with the world, but by being friends of God? Which, by the way, is how Abraham is described several times moving forward in Scripture. Are we reminding them that satisfaction comes by faith in Christ, through whom we are children of God upon whom the favor of God rests? Are we doing everything we can 
to remove the hindrances and to protect them in order that the promises may continue in them and to their children and to their children's children should the Lord tarry until He returns. Well, in verses 21 to 23, we learn that like Sarah before her, Rebekah was barren. But unlike Sarah, she only had 20 years, she only had a 20-year wait before that all changed. And through the faithful prayers of her husband, she conceived and she bore twins. But that pregnancy was anything but pleasant. Moses said that the twins were crushing one another and their mother. That word struggling is used in other places figuratively to to describe the oppression of people, but it's used literally to describe crushing heads and skulls. So it's not hyperbole to say that these two are wrestling violently within their mother to the point that Gordon Wenham says, Rebecca wondered if there was any point in going on living. You ladies who are carrying, can you imagine? Some of you would probably say yes. And so what did she do? She began to pray. She began to pray, and the Lord graciously answered her and explained what was happening. He said there were two nations in her womb, and two peoples from within her would be divided. The one would be stronger and the other uh, would be stronger than the other, and the older would serve the younger. And this, of course, comes to pass, and we see this, and we're going to see this uh, throughout the Old Testament. Um, as Edom, the, the descendants of the older brother Esau, would serve and, and continually be dominated by Israel, who were the descendants of the younger brother Jacob. But we've got to ask ourselves, at this point, why is the birth narrative important? And one of the reasons it's important is well, we have to remember who Moses was writing to. He was writing to Israel, who was leaving or had left um, Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, and they're waiting to enter the promised land, and, and we remember that later they would, be re- they would read and hear this story while um, living in Babylon, in, in exile in Babylon. And so throughout their lives, this birth story would, would have given them hope, and it would have given them hope because it would have given them an identity as a people. And Moses said that identity was based on both God's creation and his choosing of them. Jacob's birth was supernatural. It was supernatural because God had to intervene. God's pattern of creating something out of nothing was again on display. He had created life out of the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now he's creating life out of the barrenness of Rebekah's womb So we could say that had he not intervened, not only would Jacob have not been born, but the people of God would not have existed. Their lives, their existence was a gift of the Creator. But God didn't just create His people. He also chose His people. There were two children within Rebekah. There were twins And notice, just as a side note, what does Moses call them? He calls them children, not fetuses. File that away for later. But he chose Jacob, the younger, and he chose him over Esau, the older. But before either, we're going to have a chance. 
Either would have a chance to merit or earn the blessing of God. God had chosen to set his love on Jacob based on the kind intention of his will and the good pleasure of his will. As we've seen in our study from the beginning of Genesis, God's people originated in the garden, right? When God created Adam and Eve. And we've been tracing the seed of the woman throughout our study through Seth and then Noah and Shem and then Abraham. But now we see this birth of Jacob, whose name is going to later be changed to Israel. And eventually the children of Abraham are going to be referred to as the sons of Jacob. And Moses is saying their identity as a people, as the sons of Jacob, was grounded in the fact that they had been created and chosen by God. And brothers and sisters, this this truth of creation, this truth of choosing, this truth of of election has significance for us as far as our identification throughout our lives as well. We're Christians today. We're a church today because we, in the the words of John, we're children of God who, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of, but of God. We're Christians, and, and we're a church today because in the words of Paul, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We're Christians today, and we're a church today because we have been, in the words of Jesus, born of the Spirit. We're Christians today and we're a church today because in the words of Paul that I read last week, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He's redeemed us and forgiven us and has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. We're Christians today and we're a church today because our salvation, as we just read from Romans 9, our salvation depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. Our identity is not in our family. Our identity is not found in our ethnicity. It's not found in our work. It's not found in our merit. We're spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. We're recipients of the promises. We're Christians. We're saints. We're a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood. We're a treasured possession. Solely because God chose us. Solely because he created us and chose us. In the words of another pastor, regardless of what the world tells us or wants us to believe regarding who we are, we were made through Christ. We were chosen in Christ. We were saved by Christ. We will live for eternity with Christ. We belong to Christ. We believe in Christ. We obey everything in Christ. That's our story. 
And he goes on to say that should give us humility in the midst of our prosperity and hope in the midst of our adversity. Thanks be to God for who we are in Christ, by God's creation and choosing. And that brings us to our last point, the temptation in the midst of life. You know the story of Jacob and Esau, so I'm not going to tell it in, or retell it in detail. There, there are word plays. Okay? There are word plays with their names and, and the color red and soup. There are allusions um, to their dispositions and their futures based on birth order and how they were actually born. There are differences in how they look um, and the work that they did and what they enjoyed as they grew up. And there's favoritism, right? Each parent has their favorite, has their favorite son. Um, but I want to concentrate on Esau. Um, and I want to concentrate on Esau because I think Moses concentrates on Esau, and, um, but so does the writer of Hebrews. Um, again, no one in the family is innocent. Parents had favorites. Uh, Jacob was a deceiver and a conniver, and again, that speaks um, very clearly about his choosing, not being based upon there being any inherent righteousness within us. Jacob wasn't chosen because he was good. But Moses focuses his attention on Esau. He said Esau despised his birthright. And the writer of Hebrews described him as unholy for doing so. So what did he do in particular? Well, he didn't value the promise. Based upon the story, as, as we read it, he, he put his immediate physical needs, right, the gratification of his physical needs ahead of the things of God. And, and we've, been, we've been walking with Abraham through his life, right, the grandfather. And we've seen Abraham's ability to see beyond the temporal to the eternal. And this story presents us a stark contrast between grandfather and grandson. Right? Grandfather was living for what was to come. Grandson wanted what he wanted, wanted, wanted what he wanted it, and he wanted it now. The grandfather was fixated on the future inheritance. Well, the grandson gave up his inheritance for immediate and momentary pleasure and temporary satisfaction. He gave up anything for the future, right? Gave up his potential headship. He gave up his double portion. Um, he gave up what the blessing. What have we been hearing of the promise? The blessing and the name and the land. And, and the presence, right? he gave it all up. Right? In other words, the, the, those promises of God meant nothing to him. He was too consumed with his own desires, 
of the flesh. He was too short-sighted. The bottom line was he lacked faith. And I've, I've heard this from so many people now, I don't remember who said it first, but the satisfaction of our fleshly sinful desires doesn't make us any more human, it makes us less human. And when you dig into how Moses describes what, um, how Esau acted, we see that. Now, I, w- I would like for us to be honest and admit that there is no one in the room who is beyond or above making this same mistake that Esau made. This is an ongoing temptation that we all face in the midst of life. And it's very possible that someone at this very moment could be very well contemplating giving up your marriage or your relationship with your kids, or if you're younger, or a relationship with your parents. You could be considering giving up your job, or your friends, or your relationships at church. And most important, your communion with God. And maybe even your very own soul. All for the sake of satisfying a momentary, fleeting, physical, or maybe emotional desire to obtain what you think is better than the promises of God. But please know that there isn't a type of relationship, there isn't a type of reputation, there isn't a type of power or prestige or position that is better than the promises of God. There's just not. And my encouragement would be to resist the devil, to flee temptation, and to run to Christ, and to trust the Lord. Because you may not know this, but he wants what's best for you more than you want it yourself. And if you've already made that choice to follow that desire, to satisfy that desire, please know that it can be forgiven. It can be forgiven. And it will be forgiven if you repent and turn to Christ. You've heard me say this many times in the last five years, but there is no sin so small that doesn't need to be forgiven, and there also is no sin so big that it can't be forgiven. If you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive you, forgive us of our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we all flee and cling to Christ in the midst of the temptations that we face in this life. May we all find our identity in him throughout this life. And may our satisfaction in Him enable us to not only enjoy this life, but to also prepare for the life to come. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the Word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. For your glory, and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.